Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, I'd like to begin first by thanking the three uh, very wonderful fellow saloners who made donations this week to uh, help with some of the expenses in getting these podcasts out to you. And uh, I'll be sending a personal email to each one of you uh, as soon as I get the program notes posted for today's podcast. But hey, thanks again. I really appreciate your help. And uh, now for today's talk, I'm going to return once again to the subject of ayahuasca. As we all know now, the brew actually consists of two main ingredients, one containing DMT and the other an MAO inhibitor so as to make the DMT orally active. However, what some may not know is that it's only really in the past uh, 30 years or so that we have really understood how ayahuasca worked. And considering the fact that uh, this medicine has been used by humans for thousands of years and that science itself is now hundreds of years old, well, I think that it's quite remarkable that you and I happen to be alive at a time when science and shamanism have come together around this sacred medicine. And in just a few moments, we're going to hear from one of the key players in the scientific research into the activity and properties of ayahuasca. The researcher I'm talking about, of course, is Dennis McKenna, who has for many years been the less heard from but no less important of the McKenna brothers. (laughs) I almost uh, just now said the infamous McKenna brothers, but uh, I'll let you read Dennis's recent book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, uh, which is about the life and times of these two brothers, and, uh, well, you can decide then for yourself about the infamous part. But uh, to me, Dennis is uh, just, well, he's just really a nice guy, you know, somebody you'd love to get to know better. Now, the talk that we're going to hear today is one that Dennis gave way back in June of 1984. And Dennis tells me that this was most likely uh, his first, or at least one of his very first public talks concerning his then very recent research into the activity of ayahuasca. In fact, uh, he tells me that this was most likely his uh, thesis defense, but repackaged for a more public presentation. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that parts of this talk are extremely technical. However, uh, if you're a layman like myself, I think you're still going to find this quite interesting in many ways. For example, until now, I really never knew how many milligrams of DMT are actually uh, contained in the average dose of ayahuasca. So, what we're about to hear is essentially the first public presentation that Dennis McKenna made of his research. And keep in mind that back in 1984, this was really big news to the psychedelic community. And the only editing that I've done here is to remove spots where Dennis asked for the next slide to be shown. Uh, Obviously, he was using PowerPoint or something like that. Uh, And even though we don't have the slides to look at here, though, I think that you will nonetheless find this historic talk quite interesting. So now let's join Dennis McKenna on a June evening in 1984. Just uh, by way of preliminary remarks, there are a couple of issues raised by this work that uh, I find interesting and possibly will be of interest to some of the audience that are involved in using psychedelics in psychotherapy, so I hope that there'll be time to touch on that tonight. And also a couple of questions that this raises with regard to brain chemistry and the possible mechanisms by which these things work. This is all peripheral to what to the work I'm going to talk about, which is that uh, for the past few years I've been working on the botany, chemistry, and ethnopharmacology, I guess you could call it, of, of two Amazonian uh, hallucinogens. And uh, this was sort of a comparative study between the two, although they are different botanically, they have similar chemistry. And uh, so that's what I'm going to discuss and then hopefully the uh, questions that issue from that will get into some of these other topics that I uh, hope will come up. Uh, As most of you know, ayahuasca 
or also called yahe in some parts of South America, is a hallucinogenic brew or beverage that's made from the bark mainly of this plant about in the Malpighiaceae, Banisteriopsis copy. Uh, together with various admixture plants, the one which is most commonly used, next slide please, the one which is most commonly used in Peru is uh, this plant here, Psychotria viridis, uh, which belongs to the coffee family. In Colombia, another admixture plant is commonly used, Diploteris cabarena, which is rather closely related to Banisteriopsis copy. Now these admixture plants are added into the ayahuasca to strengthen, prolong, and intensify the effect the hallucinogenic effect of the drug, and the mestizo practitioners who use this drug claim that the admixture plants are necessary to provide the desired visionary experience. In manufacturing the ayahuasca, the stems of the Banisteriopsis are stripped off the vine and chopped up, or the bark is stripped off, and then this is boiled together with the leaves of the admixture plant for several hours over a low fire, and then the brew which results after several changes of water, the plant material is removed and concentrated to a fraction of its original volume. And then the final product, which is a bitter, intensely bitter coffee-colored brew, plays a very important role in mestizo ethnomedicine, in uh, folk medicine as practiced uh, among this group of people in, in uh, Peru and Colombia. By interpretation of the, his own visions, the content of his own visions or his patient's visions, the ayahuasquero, as the practitioner is called that specializes in the use of, these, of this drug, can uh, divine the causes of illness or misfortune and uh, decide on an appropriate remedy or intervention. Often uh, the causes of illness will be attributed to supernatural origins and the uh, remedies or intervention will involve uh, uh, exorcistic type manipulations or other kinds of magically based uh, uh, interventions. In other cases, however, the ayahuasca will result to botanical medicines uh, to treat illness. He, and this slide just lists a few of them, uh, an experienced ayahuasca is familiar with well over a hundred of these medicinal plants. This just shows a few of a selection of them from the different families, their common names, and some of the uh, biologically active secondary constituents, plant, uh, plant compounds that have been found in those that have been looked at. Actually, uh, only a very small fraction of the commonly used admixture plants have been chemically examined, so this is potentially an area for pharmacologists and uh, pharmacognosists to look into for sources of new pharmaceuticals. The ayahuasquero learns about these plants and their properties during his initiatory, uh, his period of initiation. Uh, he, take, he learns about them by taking them as admixtures to ayahuasca, and uh, along with the psychotria admixture, which is, which is a constant ingredient in ayahuasca. And the claim is made that uh, by doing so, he learns about these plants and what their properties are. Now, whether this can be given credence or not is not clear, but certainly it must be said that over the years they have managed to... Uh, select from their environment a number of plants with interesting pharmacological properties, both psychoactive plants and otherwise. Well, the other Amazon hallucinogen that I'm going to talk about is manufactured from certain trees belonging to the genus Varola in the nutmeg family. And here's one specimen that's so utilized shown here. Uh, in uh, most parts, or many parts of the Amazon basin, the Varola is made into a snuff. The varola tree produces on the inner cambial part of its bark a thick, sticky red resin, which is shown here. And the Yanomamo Indians and related tribes manufacture a hallucinogenic snuff from this varola resin. And the same group of Indians is also known to prepare a dart poison from the same species of trees that they use for the snuffs. 
And the mechanism of action of the start poison has been uh, sort of a puzzle to ethnopharmacologists. It's still not resolved, but some progress has been made. Perhaps we'll get into that later. This just shows Yanomama with his coated darts made from varola resin. But in the region of the Amazon, south of the Putumayo, in the area of the Rio Ampiyaku and Rio Yaguasiaku, which are located between the Putumayo River and the Amazon River, which roughly parallel each other. Is that Peru or Brazil? In Peru, Peru. yes. The varola uh, is used in, in a different form than the snuff, in that an orally active uh, form of hallucinogen is made. And in this method, the bark, the cambial strips are, are stripped off of the tree and the resin is scraped off. And then uh, the uh, strips are soaked for a while and then this aqueous infusion is results. And this is uh, cooked down over a low fire to the consistency of a thick paste. And then this paste is mixed with the ashes of certain other plants and rolled into little boluses, which are or orally ingested. Uh, the effect is said to be very strong and to appear very rapidly. Okay, I guess so. These two, two uh, Amazon hallucinogens are, were the focus of my investigation. And, uh, okay, although these hallucinogens are derived from completely different botanical sources, their chemistry is very similar. Uh, Banisteriopsis copy, the main source plant in ayahuasca, contains the beta-carboline alkaloids, which representatives of which are shown down here, the main alkaloids being harmine, harmaline, and tetrahydroharmine. While the admixture plant, Psychotria viridis, or Diploteris cabarena, contains primarily tryptamines such as NN-dimethyltryptamine, and again, a selection of different psychoactive or, neuro or biologically active treatments are shown. An interesting feature of the pharmacology of dimethyltryptamine and 5-methoxy-DMT is that they're not orally active. They have to be ingested parenterally, which is why the usual means of ingesting them is by smoking them, or in the case of the varola snuffs, by, by that route. So that's the pharmacological rationale uh, behind the the activity of the varola snuffs. <laughs> However, the orally active varola pastes and ayahuasca may work by a different mechanism. It turns out that the tryptamines may be orally active uh, if they're ingested in the presence of a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. This could protect the tryptamines from uh, deamination in peripheral tissues and allow them to be taken up into the central nervous system in the active form. And also, conveniently enough, it turns out that uh, beta-carbolines are reversible inhibitors of monoamine oxidase, rather potent ones. They themselves are also hallucinogenic, but that uh, type of activity requires doses that are two to three orders of magnitude greater than the activity at which they're, the levels at which they're effective MAO inhibitors, and it also uh, is two or three orders of magnitude greater than the hallucinogenic threshold doses for the tryptamines. And in the case of uh, ayahuasca, the, the brew contains primarily beta-carbolines with dimethyltryptamine from the admixture plants. And in the case of the varolas, the constituents are mainly tryptamines, either dimethyltryptamine or 5-methoxy-DMT. And, uh, and lower levels, in some cases trace levels, of beta-carbolines. So the question that I was, one of the questions I was attempting to answer is, does this mechanism of oral activation of the tryptamines via inhibition of monoamine oxidase make sense? In other words, can it be experimentally approached in the laboratory, and can we get some data that would tend to confirm or disconfirm this? So this just basically summarizes some of my objectives. I wanted to look at a number of different samples, drug samples from different parts of Peru com, uh, prepared by different practitioners to find out what the variation in alkaloid content was. In other words, how much was there and what kinds of alkaloid were there. <coughs> and secondarily, do the amounts of tryptamines or beta-carbolines in the drugs exceed the amounts that we know to be necessary for hallucinogenic um, activity. In other words, uh, is a, a typical dose above the known thresholds? 
A second, uh, a third consideration was to find out if the alkaloid content of the drug samples was similar or how similar was it to that of their source plants. Obviously in the process of, of preparing the drugs, they're subjected to some rather drastic uh, boiling and other extractive processes, so it's possible that this could affect the chemistry of the active ingredients. And the fourth question was, are these drugs active as monoamine oxidase inhibitors? And if so, which of the constituents are primarily responsible for this activity? And uh, in connection with that, I wanted to find out if, since these uh, drugs are, rather than being single compounds, are rather complex mixtures of compounds, I wanted to see if there might be some synergistic uh, action, at least as far as MAO inhibition was concerned. So in order to accumulate some of this analytical data on the composition of these drugs, I used a number of analytical techniques, including HPLC, high-pressure uh, liquid chromatography, that is, uh, gas chromatography, and uh, thin layer, and, uh, and, get, and in some cases, gas chromatography, uh, mass spectrometry. This just shows a typical <coughs> HPLC profile of an ayahuasca sample with the major four constituents and their uh, order of evolution. So this shows the results of an HPLC uh, quantitation of some samples made by different practitioners from different parts of Peru. And uh, what we find here is, not unexpectedly, there is quite a bit of variation in the alkaloid content, both in terms of the total alkaloids, which are shown here, and also in terms of the proportions of various constituents. Uh, the same four constituents were pretty much constantly present uh, in all of them. That is, harmine, tetrahydroharmine, DMT, and harmaline, more or less uh, in that order. What are the names of the list, by the way? <laughs> oh, okay, well, these, these are just, the, the samples are named basically by the person who got them, or that they were obtained from. So, and their place of origin and the name of the ayahuascaro is how these samples were identified. And this shows the alkaloid contents in terms of the milligrams per gram uh, dry weight. These samples were lyophilized for analysis. And uh, then this just shows the percent of the total alkaloid. So as you can see, they do both in terms of absolute alkaloid content and in terms of the proportions of various constituents, they do vary quite a bit. And obviously, uh, a question is, where does this variation come from? Well, obviously, one factor is going to be variability in methods of preparation. In other words, how much plant material is used, how long it's extracted, how much admixture is added, uh, and so on. And another uh, source of variation may be the chemical uh, differences between cultivars of Banisteriopsis copy. Um, the ayahuascaros recognize uh, up to 10 different cultivars, which they give different names to and make different claims for, claim that they vary in their strength and their effects. Um, I was able to look at some of these. I don't have a slide of it, but I did find that there was quite a bit of variation in alkaloid content, but it wasn't possible to, the sample wasn't sufficient to actually correlate it to different cultivars, and I suspect that environmental conditions that the plants are grown under make uh, quite a bit of variation in the strength and, uh, and proportions of alkaloids. Okay, so this is a similar slide, except that it uh, shows the HPLC quantitation of the alkaloid content of five samples of ayahuasca prepared by these two gentlemen, and they collaborate in the preparation of their brews, Don Fidel and Don Juan, and draw their source plants basically from the same garden. So they have uh, cultivars that have been established for some time of both the Banisteriopsis copy and the Socotria admixture. And uh, in this case, we find that there's remarkable little variation from batch to batch, uh, both in terms of total alkaloid content and in terms of the proportions of various constituents. They are actually fairly close. Uh, between different batches, and it appears that uh, there, that the in that in the process of manufacturing the brew, given a source of genetically uniform source plants, these practitioners are able to exercise what you might call a fairly high degree of pharmaceutical quality control from batch to batch, and 
trying to relate this, uh, this information to the amounts of active compounds that would be present in a typical dose of ayahuasca, we can get a ballpark idea by looking at the average of these five samples, which is shown down here. And if we say that a typical dose is 100 milliliters, which it's usually close to that or perhaps slightly less, we can say that 100 milliliters of ayahuasca would contain around 728 milligrams of total alkaloid. Most of that would be harmine, 467 milligrams, 65%. And followed by tetrahydroharmine, followed by DMT, there would be about 60 milligrams of DMT and about 40 milligrams of harmaline. Uh, well, this is this data can be interpreted based on what we know about the required threshold doses uh, for the activity of these compounds. And uh, we can see that uh, in the case of DMT, there's about 60 milligrams in a 100 milliliter dose of this drug. So that's well within the ballpark. Uh, I think threshold activity uh, in a fully grown adult is around 15 milligrams. And, but optimal activity or the full spectrum of effects is observed around 50 to 75 milligrams. So this figure is well within that ballpark, assuming that it can somehow be orally activated. As far as the beta-carbolines, though, uh, the contents of all of them are well below the amounts known to be hallucinogenic for that class of compounds. Uh, for instance, harmine is known to be orally inactive and Sasha can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but uh, it's known to be orally, there may be new work, it's known to be orally inactive in doses in excess of one gram. And harmaline uh, exhibits threshold activity around three to 400 milligrams. And the amounts of these beta-carbolines found in these drugs are well below, so a couple of orders of magnitude, below those levels. So from this we can infer that the activity of ayahuasca as a hallucinogen is probably due to the DMT, and the assumption is that it may be orally activated uh, by the beta-carbolines. There's certainly uh, sufficient amounts of them to have uh, present to have that activity. Just, I just want to say something about the admixture plants. Several admixture plant samples of psychotria were analyzed, and one sample of Diploteris cabarena was analyzed, and DMT was detected as the only major base in either sample. Uh, they basically can't be told apart. One is Psychotria, one is Diploteris, on the basis of uh, their alkaloid content. And it was fairly substantial, between 1.5 and 2 milligrams per gram in the dry weight, uh, in the leaves, dried leaves. Uh, so this is, botanically, it's remarkable in that it's such a clean source of DMT, only traces of other compounds were detected. Okay, when we look at the uh, similar quantitative data for some of the Varola pastes and several samples of Yanomamo snuffs from Venezuela, these are the Varola pastes with their different names, native names, and their place of origin and the pers person that manufactured it. This is the number of the voucher specimen that they came from, the species of the tree from which they were manufactured, and the alkaloids that were detected expressed in terms of milligrams per gram dry weight. And then the percent, again, of the total is shown out here. And uh, this quantitation was done using uh, gas chromatography. And what uh, I found was that unlike ayahuasca, there's not only quantitative variation in the alkaloid content, but considerable qualitative variation as well. In other words, the base composition of uh, different samples of these pastes, actually none is identical to any other one. So it appears that, and this is also true of the snuffs, it appears that the uh, pastes and the snuffs are a much more chemically variable uh, drug, and this may influence their pharmacology. In fact, it undoubtedly does. Uh, again, trying to relate this to uh, the doses that would be required to elicit hallucinogenic effects, if we look at the paste and snuff samples that have the highest alkaloid content, some of them have extremely low alkaloid contents. Others have substantial 
amounts, 18 milligrams per gram, 15 milligrams per gram, and so on. Well, if we try to relate that to the dose and say, how much of this material, paste or snuff, would you have to ingest to exceed the threshold doses? Um, it really depends on uh, which constituent, DMT or 5-methoxy-DMT, is the major constituent. Uh, if DMT is the major constituent, it would require somewhere on the order of uh, half of a gram to uh, five grams, uh, half of a gram to get threshold effects, five grams for the full spectrum of effects, which might be difficult if you're talking about ingesting four or five grams of snuff, although it wouldn't prevent, present any problem in the case of the orally active pastes. But if 5-methoxy-DMT is the major constituent, since it's an order of magnitude more active than DMT, then presumably about one-tenth of that amount would be required. So one-tenth to one-half of a gram if 5-methoxy-DMT is the major constituent. And this would be, could be readily accomplished even if the route of ingestion was by snuffing. So from this we can infer, or we can speculate at least, that the most active paste and snuff samples are probably those that contain primarily 5-methoxy-DMT. And as you can see, some of them contain only 5-methoxy-DMT. And in other cases where uh, both compounds are present, 5-methoxy-DMT is usually the predominant uh, constituent. Okay, this quantitative or qualitative variation found in the paste and uh, snuff sample seems to be a function of the source plants. And this slide just shows, again, not all but a selection of different source plants or related plants in the same family that were examined, that were screened for alkaloids. And uh, again, some uh, specimens have no alkaloids. Alkaloids were not detected. In other cases, they do have the expected tryptamines, but the distribution, uh, both in terms of the type and uh, where they are, is different in, in that sense that in that uh, there was a distribution, different parts of the same plant uh, often had a different composition, and different collections of the same species often differed in their composition as well, of course, as different species, which you'd expect. But uh, even within a species, there appears to be a great deal of chemical variation, and that probably is, again, related to seasonal or environmental factors. Another, perhaps the most significant finding on this, was that most of the paste and stuff samples were examined contained, either did not contain beta-carbolines, or at least they were not detected, or in cases where they were detected, they were only trace constituents. Uh, these two compounds, which the mass spectra has shown, were detected in two snuff samples, and all the others uh, didn't contain uh, beta-carbolines that were detectable, at least using my methods. So, and the only way that these could be detected was by mass spectrometry. So. Uh, because the concentration was so low. So this indicates that even in the cases where the snuffs, where the pastes, rather, do contain beta-carbolines, they probably are not sufficient uh, to contribute significantly to its pharmacological activity. So it appears that uh, in the case of the virola pastes, uh, they, if they are orally active, in fact, they may be activated by some constituents other than the beta-carbolines, or there may be something else going on. Okay, so this just summarizes basically what was found with these two drugs, ayahuasca and the virola, the myristicaceous uh, hallucinogens. In a case of ayahuasca, there was considerable quantitative variation, but the same constituents were consistently found in different batches. And harmine was uh, consistently the most abundant beta-carboline that was found, and harmaline was the least abundant, which is interesting because that's the reverse of their hallucinogenic activity. In other words, harmaline is the, requires the lowest dose to manifest activity as a hallucinogen, but it's not found in ayahuasca in sufficient doses probably to do this. And the amount of DMT in most doses of ayahuasca did exceed the threshold dose that's known to be required for hallucinogenic activity of this compound. Uh, leaving aside, or perhaps should be mentioned at this time, is that also in the presence of beta-carbolines or other MAO inhibitors, 
uh, significantly smaller amounts of DMT may be active because they may protect it from degradation and facilitate its reaching the, the site of its activity. In the case of uh, the Varola drugs, there was a lot of quantitative and, and qualitative variation as well. And this appeared to be a reflection of the source plants. The major tryptamines found in the drugs were DMT and or 5-methoxy-DMT. And NMT, N-methyltryptamine, was also usually present, but it was also uh, tended to be a trace constituent, except one sample had it as the main constituent. And uh, the third finding is that beta-carbolines were not detected in most of these PACE samples, and in the cases where they were, they were trace constituents. Okay, so that sort of completed the analytical phase of this work, looking into the composition of these drugs and uh, trying to get an idea what the alkaloid uh, profiles looked like. So the next step was to investigate the activity of these drugs and some of their active constituents as monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Uh, and for this, I used an in vitro assay using... Uh, carbon-14 labeled serotonin as the substrate. And first I just tested several uh, synthetic beta-carboline derivatives, or they do occur in nature, but they were synthetically manufactured, to get an idea of the structure activity relationships of these compounds in terms of their action as MIO inhibitors. And in this assay, the parameter that's measured is the I50, which is the molar uh, concentration of inhibitor that's required to uh, inhibit 50% of the enzyme activity. This is the work reported for my thesis, and this is for comparison uh, work done by previous investigators. And uh, without getting into the details of structure activity, I just will say that in most cases, <clears throat> the beta-carbolines turned out to be very good, very potent MAO inhibitors. This is, of course, known from previous work. But uh, in most cases, the I-50s were on the order of 10 to the minus 6 to 10 to the minus 7th molar. The most active of the beta-carbolines were actually uh, harmine and harmaline were very close, but they were an order of magnitude more active than the other ones active at around 10 to the minus 8th molar in, in my assays. And uh, so they are very good uh, MAO inhibitors in vitro. And they are, of course, at least harmine is the major constituent in ayahuasca. As far as the activity of mixtures uh, of beta-carbolines, I, I assayed those to see if there might be some sort of synergistic interaction between these three main constituents found in ayahuasca and found that basically there wasn't. That in other words, an equimolar mixture of ayahuasca of uh, the three uh, main beta-carbolines uh, had an I-50 that was intermediate between the most active, which was harmine, and the least active, which was tetrahydroharmine. So there doesn't, at least in vitro, appear to be synergistic activity of these compounds. And uh, mixtures of beta-carbolines reflecting the approximate proportions and percentages of these constituents also showed intermediate activity, slightly less than the aqua, aquamolar mixture. Okay, so as far as the activity of ayahuasca itself as an MAO inhibitor, this was just uh, done by a series of log dilutions uh, from the full-strength brew. And what I found was that uh, even uh, at dilutions of many orders of magnitude, uh, these two samples, which represented the samples containing the most alkaloid, were rather effective as MAO inhibitors. Even at 10 to the minus 7th of the full strength, uh, this compound shows inhibition more than 50% of the enzyme, and this one almost 50%, about 45% at that level. So it appears that in vitro, at least, ayahuasca uh, is a very good very potent inhibitor of monoamine oxidase, uh, even when diluted, when greatly diluted. Okay, so then in order to get a comparative idea of the activity of various tryptamine derivatives as MAO inhibitors, uh, and compare them both to each other and to the beta-carbolines, I again did this structure activity uh, determination using the same system. 
and uh, figuring that since the substrate for the enzyme is a tryptamine, that these compounds might show some degree of inhibition, either as competitive substrates or as inhibitors in their own right. And basically, uh, again, without talking about the details of, of the structure activity, basically the finding is that the tryptamines were, most of them did show some degree of inhibition in this system, but they were several uh, orders of magnitude less active than the beta-carbolines, around 10 to the minus 5 or 10 to the minus 4 molar in most cases. Uh, <laughs> The, perhaps the most interesting finding is that NN-dimethyltryptamine, DMT, was the most active of, as an MAO inhibitor of the beta-carbolines, uh, of the tryptamines that were tested. In fact, its activity was comparable to tetrahydroharmine, which was one of the least active beta-carbolines, but still not bad. Uh, so uh, perhaps this uh, f finding does bear some relation to the question of the oral act activation of DMT. Okay, so uh, having gotten some idea of the uh, activity of various tryptamines as MAO inhibitors, then I went on to test uh, various uh, extracts and fractions from these varola pastes. And what was done here was that the, uh, the paste uh, extract was worked up for the assay, and then the alkaloid content was quantified with HPLC and run in parallel with a mixture, what I call paste analogs, which were basically mixtures of the, trip, the major tryptamines found in the same proportions and, and approximate concentrations as were found in, in the paste extracts. And the thinking was that if the MAO inhibition in the paste extracts was primarily due or solely due to the tryptamines, that they would parallel very closely the activity of the paste analogs in which only tryptamines were present. Uh, if other constituents were contributing to the activity, then you would expect a differing I-50 for the paste extracts than for the analogs, mixtures. So in the case of the three pastes which had the highest alkaloid content, you can see that in most cases the curves parallel very closely. And so the I-50 uh, of the paste versus the analog of the paste did not differ uh, greatly. So from this you can infer that the activity uh, what limited activity it has is probably due to the tryptamines in it. Uh, this uh, supposition is supported also by the fact that the range of the I-50s close, well matches the range for individual tryptamine constituents. In other words, it's not down toward the harmine end of it. And another uh, thing which I don't have a slide of, but uh, several, a couple of samples uh, which were free of alkaloids, in one case a paste sample which lacked alkaloids, and in another case a, a fraction of lignans from varola, uh, lignans are another class of secondary compounds, were tested for MAO inhibition just to see if they might, other constituents might contribute to the activity, and basically none was found. The only thing that was observed was some degree of inhibition only at the highest concentrations. Uh, so it appears that the varola paste are rather poor MAO inhibitors, and uh, what uh, activity they show is probably due primarily to the tryptamines. So it looks like, uh, in contrast to ayahuasca, uh, it may be necessary to look for some other mechanism to explain their oral activity, if, in fact, they are uh, orally active uh, hallucinogens. Well, one possibility, uh, is that their oral activity is not, in fact, due to the tryptamines at all. It might be due to some other constituent uh, in the resin. One possibility is, again, these lignans. Uh, my colleague, Don McCrae, who uh, worked on varola, uh, worked on the uh, activity of varola as an aeropoison, has isolated several biologically active lignans from the resin and found that they do have effects on locomotor activity uh, in suppressing locomotor activity that are significantly greater than comparable doses of tryptamines. So it's possible that this may explain its activity as an aeropoison poison and may also uh, at least contribute to its oral activity. Uh, however, it's also possible to uh, speculate on another uh, mechanism for the oral activation uh, of the tryptamines in varola resin. 
So uh, it's possible to, spot, to postulate another mechanism, and this gets to your question, uh, whether DMT is a good substrate for, for monoamine oxidase. Uh, there have been uh, recent experimental investigations of DMT uh, metabolism in peripheral tissues. This has been done by a group in Alabama that's been investigating the possible role of DMT as an endogenous, endogenously produced hallucinogens. And, and they have found that DMT is actually a rather poor substrate for MAO. Uh, this slide just shows some of the other pathways that have been characterized for DMT uh, degradation in peripheral tissues, basically the rat liver homogenate, or in some cases the rat liver microsomal uh, fraction. Uh, MAO will metabolize DMT and other tryptamines to indoleacetic acid, and uh, this constituent is detected in the incubation mixture, but it appears uh, late in the incubation, and uh, they have speculated that DMT is not directly deaminated to uh, indoleacetic acid by MAO, but rather that it is more, it is uh, a better substrate for the hepatic monooxygenases, the so-called MFOs, the uh, hepatic uh, uh, microsomal drug metabolizing enzymes, which metabolize it to uh, various things. 6-hydroxy-DMT appears to be a minor metabolite, and DMT anoxide, which then by various uh, intermediates and steps can eventually become via this intermediate become demethylated to form N-methyltryptamine. This then is readily metabolized by MAO. It's about an eight, it's metabolized about 18 times faster than DMT by MAO. So it's probably that the IAA that shows up late in the incubation actually is a, a tertiary metabolite and the precursor is primarily N-methyltryptamine. But uh, there are other aspects of this pathway too. For instance, under other conditions, the same intermediate can go via this route of cyclization to form uh, tetrahydrobetacarbolines, which that's uh, an aspect that uh, I want to touch on later. But in other words, this is only uh, some of the, of the possible uh, routes of transformation of this DMT, this endogenous hallucinogen. Well, assuming, for the sake of argument, uh, that perhaps in the peripheral tissues, DMT is primarily uh, inactivated or metabolized via this mechanism involving these microsomal MFOs, uh, then it's possible to, to propose a mechanism, an alternative mechanism, whereby uh, it could be orally activated by other constituents in the virola resin. Uh, recent structure activity uh, studies of MFO inhibitors have shown that compounds uh, containing the methylene dioxyphenyl group, which is, uh, for those of you who are not chemists, I don't know that it would, but it, anyhow, it is a particular chemical configuration. It's the same configuration, as a matter of fact, as found in uh, MDMA and some of these phenethylamines. But it turns out that the pharmacophore the required chemical configuration for MFO inhibitors are compounds containing this methylene dioxyphenyl moiety. And it turns out that virola resin uh, is a particularly rich source of secondary compounds which do contain this moiety. So it's possible that some of these constituents, by inhibiting uh, this uh, MFO-mediated pathway of degradation, could protect the tryptamines from uh, peripheral degradation and allow them to be uh, orally activated. Uh, and this, uh, this alternative mechanism may underlie the oral activity of the virola pastes. It may also contribute to the activity of ayahuasca. Uh, the action of beta-carbolines as MFO inhibitors I don't think has been closely looked at. Uh, However, in the case of ayahuasca, it's not necessary really to invoke that mechanism uh, because there are sufficient beta-carbolines to effectively inhibit MAO. It may also be that by blocking the inhibition of MAO in the case of ayahuasca, that there are, via feedback mechanisms, this pathway may 
also be affected. So, although this last part of it is purely speculation, it's not been shown that by inhibition of MFO that you can orally activate DMT or some other of these psych, uh, hallucinogenic tryptamines. Uh, it's at least a reasonable speculation, and that is basically the substance of, of my findings that uh, at least that's what I'm going to conclude with tonight. So, if anybody more questions or yeah, something that wasn't clear to me from uh, this presentation, the, the ayahuasca press, uh, preparation. Mm -hmm. What happens if uh, someone just boils uh, the ayahuasca by itself, and then the constituents by themselves and ingest those and together? No, separately. They're always taken nothing. Together. They're always taken together. Separately, they're inactive. Although, well, I should qualify that, because ayahuasca is occasionally taken by itself. In other words, it's occasionally manufactured only from Banisteriopsis copy. And there may be two things going on. It's possible that it's concentrated much more, or they may use more plant material, so that, so that in that case you do get up into these levels where the beta-carbolines begin to become hallucinogenic. That's a pos in other words, they contain more than the other. Or uh, it's possible that it's not really a hallucinogen, but it does something, right? When it's taken, when it's manufactured by itself, it does something. It, it may be a general stimulant, or it may not be the activity, may not be the same. They don't claim that ayahuasca is inactive by itself. They claim that in order to make it a hallucinogen, in order to make it a visionary experience, you have to have the admixture plant. Well, That's the thing. So it may have other kinds of... Have I checked this out? No. No. Because I haven't... This is one approach, but I haven't had an opportunity to manufacture my own ayahuasca in fairly careful conditions where I could control the amount of admixture plant or whether admixture plant was added or not. This is one direction that I think it would be good to go to look at it because actually now with the fact with fairly simple simple chemical methods it's possible for us to know more about the composition of ayahuasca or the drugs the particular brews that we make than the ayahuascaros ever dreamed of knowing so you can actually combine you know the ancient shamanic approach to it with a little thin layer chromatography and I think you could get pretty far in, in, in altering the quality and the activity of your samples. They do claim that they, there are many different kinds of ayahuasca with many different kinds of activity depending on which, depending on how much of the, of the main admixture plants and which other admixture plants are added into it. I mean, for instance, they will often add solanaceous admixture plants into these, Datura and or Brunfelsia or other things. There are many interesting plants that they use in conjunction with ayahuasca, which may themselves have activity, you know, just by themselves. So this is another thing that needs to be looked at. This admixture plant technology is pretty uh, involved and sophisticated. In the case of the ayahuasca, when they first looked at it, they found beta-carbolines. Well, they, they extracted it and initially found beta-carbolines, which would stick up like a sore thumb because they'd be there in much greater amounts than the tryptamines and would be much more easily detectable. It's possible that you wouldn't see the tryptamine if you weren't looking for it. And in other words, check then the clinical activity. Well, when they found beta-carbolines, they thought they knew, they thought they understood it all because these were compounds that had been known for years. I mean, they'd been first uh, isolated from, I think, Piganum harmala in the 1860s. So they looked at ayahuasca and they said, aha, harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, we've seen all these. And we know what they do. It's, and so the specific, uh, although they don't know what they do, that's a whole, they're actually just now finding that they have a whole spectrum of biological activities, some of which is neurological and some of which is completely off in other areas. Uh, the activity of the beta-carbolines, uh, the pharmacology in humans has just not been thoroughly looked at, actually. I mean, the, the most... Uh, the study usually cited is Naranjo's uh, work, which is, I think, most reported in the ethnopharmacologic search. 
and it was uh, it was not systematic. Many of the trials were based on one trial and in in one person. So the doses required and all this it's still although since there's been a lot of work done on this. I mean I think but it's actually a question. You know, not all the beta carbolines are hallucinogenic. You know, but they may have other activities or interact with other systems. Like it's possible that by uh, simply by uh, uh, inhibiting peripheral MAO, if you had a brew made solely from Banisteriopsis, it's possible that you could affect your your own amine metabolism. You know, depending on other, maybe that's a mechanism. In other words, maybe it uh, maybe it affects the metabolism of your own DMT. You know, preventing the breakdown. I mean, I don't really think so, but it's possible. A dietary sources is another thing, yes. And I didn't, yes, the ayahuascaros are very uh, insistent that you have to follow a particular diet in order to get the full benefit out of ayahuasca. And in its, in its use in ethnomedicine, it's different than an, what you might call an acute hallucinogen. Mushrooms, psilocybin, is an acute hallucinogen, I would say, in that you take it, and something happens usually. I mean, it's pretty, you get off and then you come down and then it's over. Ayahuasca actually, the way they employ it is to take it over a period of time, frequently, while observing this diet. And it, it, the common uh, observation is that the, the initial sessions, the initial trips don't do that much. Uh, you don't get off so, so well, but then as you continue to take it and continue to follow the diet, uh, without increasing the dose, it eventually begins to become stronger and stronger as you take it. And also it's claimed that these effects last over a period of time. In other words, a big component of the, of the imagery has to do with dreams, and they're very tuned into alterations in dream states and this sort of thing. So I think ayahuasca is not it really isn't that well understood what's going on, but there are a, no, there are a number of things, some of which may have long-term effects that are going on. I think that, that uh, well, since you brought it up, I think that, that beta-carbolines, this combination of beta-carbolines and tryptamines that we see uh, in these two drugs, I think the real sort of importance of them is that we find the same combination in brain chemistry. In, and it's now known that DMT is produced endogenously in normal human brain. It's not known exactly what it's done, what it does there. And it's also known that beta-carbolines are produced in the brain and in various other parts of the body. And since, as shown on that next to the last slide, since uh, uh, beta-carbolines are uh, a product of the metabolism of DMT in the periphery, they there's all sorts of opportunities for them to, to feed back on that metabolism because of their action as MAO inhibitors, because of their action as inhibitors of the uptake of neurotransmitters. And, you know, they are just very, very... Uh, this particular combination of drugs that you find, of alkaloids that you find in these plants are very close to what may be going on in brain chemistry. And, by looking at the mechanisms by which these plants work, maybe we can get a bead on, uh, you know, how mechanisms behind schizophrenia and this sort of thing. But I, I do feel that this, these classes, the beta-carbolines and the tryptamines, are an important place to look because they are essentially the drugs that we have in our bodies. They're the internal ones. And, uh, and also, I get, you're probably aware of the connections that have been found recently between beta-carbolines and their formation in ethanol metabolism and this sort of thing. Uh, beta-carbolines and tetrahydroisoquinolines are, will appear, will, can be detected in the urine a few hours after ethanol loading. And it's thought to be a reaction between tryptamines and acetaldehyde, which is the metabolite of ethanol. And they've, there have been attempts to link this to an etiological mechanism in alcoholism. Uh, I don't really think that that's going on, but it certainly is a possibility. Um, it should be looked at, definitely, because 
these beta carbolines have uh, a wide spectrum of, of activities at low doses. You know, their hallucinogenic activity is perhaps the least manifest. In other words, they're inhibitors of amine uptake, they're MAO inhibitors, they're mutagens, they're known to intercalate into DNA, they're known to be phototoxic or photoactive is a better term. Uh, so, who knows? It's really wide open. This. Anybody have anything else they want to say? Thank you. That's enough. <laughs>
The human time frame is measured in years, sometimes centuries, rarely in millennia. Mere blinks when measured against the evolutionary time scales of planetary life, the scale on which ayahuasca wields its influence. It will be here long after the governments, religions, and political power structures that seem today so permanent and so menacing have dissolved into dust. It will be here long after our ephemeral species has been reduced to anomalous sediment in the fossil record. The real question is, will we be here long enough to hear its message, to integrate what it is trying to tell us, and to change in response before it is too late? Ayahuasca has the same message for us now that it has always had since the beginning of its symbiotic relationship with humanity. Are we willing to listen? Only time will tell. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.